invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 6. Judges 6, begin at verse 25 and go to the end of the chapter, verse 40. Judges 6, 25 through 40. Let's go to God in prayer. Our God, we depend upon your revelation. We depend upon the light of your revelation, that we might see you more clearly, that we might see ourselves with greater accuracy, that we might walk in paths of righteousness, enlightened by your word. Help us to understand and to apply this text to our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Judges 6, 25 through 40. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here, with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the asher beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the man of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son, that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the asher beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore on that day Gideon was called Jeroboam. That is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please, let me test just once more with the fleece. Please, let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, it's not breaking news to be reminded that the people of God are a weak people. 
Our frailty seems ever before us, does it not? We have weak bodies, if not now, certainly soon. We have also weak spirits. We have a weak, frail faith. Consider the saint who perhaps embarrassingly reveals to you that he has no passion for the Bible. He asks, am I even a Christian? I know that Christians love the Word of God, but I feel nothing when I read the Bible. Or consider the child of God who was recently informed by her doctor that she has a terminable disease. And she wonders, has the Lord left me? Will he preserve me? Will he protect me? Has he abandoned me? Is he still with me? Or consider the college student who grew up in the faith, made a profession of his own, but whose first two years of college life have shown zero evidence of an abiding love for Jesus. Concerned, he suspects that his life up until now has been all a show. Consider the little one who, according to everyone around her, is just too young, really, to know if she belongs to Christ, as her faith sure seems to indicate. And so in her mind, she is struggling with honoring her parents or her grandparents' summary of her state, because she cannot even fathom eternal life apart from Christ. In all these scenarios, the reality of someone's faith has been challenged. And in some cases, it may be reasonable, even necessary, to inquire more deeply into the authenticity of that particular faith expression. But in others, proving or disproving its genuineness may do more harm than help. And in our text this morning, we have a judge, Gideon, whom we saw last week, and he struggles to believe, yet believes. His struggle is not because of the revelation of the Lord. And as we will see, the Lord graciously bends over backwards to help this struggling child of God. The Lord blesses Gideon with his word and some sign. Nevertheless, this Gideon, this supposed mighty man of valor, as we saw last week, this man can still grow in his trust in the Lord. He hasn't fully arrived. His faith is weak, imperfect. True faith and true worship go hand in hand. The Lord supports our faith to support our worship of the great God. The Lord is faithful to restore true worship. Well, the sermon text from last Lord's Day or morning ended hanging on a cliff. Gideon's sacrifice was accepted by the angel of the Lord, the Son of God himself. And as we saw, peace was secured. The author is named, the Lord is peace. But the matter of Gideon's obedience to God's call still hung in the air. What will he do? Will he obey? With peace with God, now will he make war with the world? The Lord commanded Gideon to take down Baal. It is now time for Baal to bounce, never to be seen in Israel again. Gideon is not to play around with the altar of Baal. He is instead to remove this altar entirely. And so what does Gideon do? He gathers ten men and obeys the Lord, as the Lord told him. His obedience was, as one man says, essential 
though his heroism was optional. The Lord called Gideon to obey. Gideon didn't have to be so heroic about it. He just had to follow the Lord's command. Gideon, we're told, was too afraid of his family. And so his was a nighttime obedience. We would think that surely since the Lord appeared to him the day of, notice it says the next day or the, the night. In verse uh, 25, it says, That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bowl. Surely we think that since the Lord appeared to him the day of, that he would be full of the mighty valor that he is said to possess. Ready to put a stop to Baal's shenanigans. Nevertheless, he was too afraid to snuff out darkness in the light of day. But surely, divine protection from these familial foes stabilized him for the rest of his ministry as judge, right? Surely, he will doubt no more, right? The Lord has given him ample evidence that he, the Lord, has called Gideon. Surely that's enough. But we see that it isn't for Gideon, though it is for God. It is not enough for Gideon. You fast forward just a few verses, and we come to that well-known test that Gideon makes of God. He has that fleece. He lays it out. Gideon has the boldness to test both the Lord's word and work. Verse 36. What does he say? If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. At the very end of verse 37, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. As you have said. Questioning whether the Lord really has said it. You say, God, that I'm your man, that I'm the one who's going to take down the Midianites. You say it, but I don't know yet that I am that man. And so here's a test, God. Here's fleece. But Gideon has already been affirmed of God's salvation. The Lord has made peace with Gideon. That's why there's the altar that was erected. The Lord is peace. Gideon has already been told that the Lord has accepted him, that he, has, that he is with him, that God is going to equip Gideon for this call, for this service. But still, as a Burger King customer, he must have it his way. Here's a fleece, Lord. Make dew fall upon just this fleece. Cause the ground around it and, and, and under it to be dry. Then I will know truly that you have sent me. What does God do? He patiently performs this miracle. Surely then, Gideon now knows, right? Well, he ought to. And he hesitates. So many pleases in, in this. Verse 39, oh, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please, let me test just once more. Please, let it be dry on the fleece only. Please, Lord, can I test you one more time? 
So against his better judgment, against God's word, against God's sign just given, he asks for another, make the fleece entirely dry this time, but the ground wet. Let the fleece be unaffected by the dew. Dear saints, God's word is sufficient. As you have said, is enough. Thus saith the Lord, is all that we need. Do we believe the sufficiency of the word of God? Do we believe that it is all that we need for life and godliness? Gideon's action here was not commendable. He is not one to be followed here. I know a lot of of people, a lot of commentators or theologians or pastors and on and on are going to use this as now a way to divine the will of God. I'm going to throw out a fleece, metaphorically speaking. I'm going to say something, that God must do something, that I will have a word, a special word from God. And once this happens, you know, whatever it is, then I will know that his word is true. We do not make deals with the Lord. Plain and simple. Period. End of sentence. Some have done that, even recently, with the celebration of Lent. They add things as if, then surely we'll, we'll know that the Lord is favorable towards us when God has spoken and God has done everything for your salvation. You don't need to be extra spiritual for those handful of days and demonstrate that through the rejection of an idol that you should have already crushed down before. We make deals. God, if you'll just forgive me, then I will fill in the blank. I remember when I was... uh, I didn't know where I was going to end up career-wise. I had applied to uh, law school. I applied to a PhD in philosophy and applied to one seminary. Clearly, you know where I ended up. But my heart was, for a while, I want to get, I want to get into law school. I really want to be a, a criminal lawyer. It sounds so exciting. But there was this nasty hindrance. It was the LSAT. The, 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 the SAT for law school. And I took it like a thousand times. And I did really well on one portion, but bombed everything else. I could analyze an argument, but I couldn't do other things. And I remember going to a, a seminar. It was a two-day seminar to help me to know this LSAT better and to take it. And I remember making a deal with God. God, if you give me a passing score, then I'll clean up my act, whatever Whoever the act was before, God, you know, make this deal with me here. He did not give me a passing score. Nobody looked at that with any kind of um, favor. But that was wrong of me to test God. The, The scripture even says, don't tempt God. We are in no position to bargain with the Lord. It is not ours to argue. It is not ours to test. It is ours to hear and believe. As you have said, is enough. God has spoken. His authority is the highest authority. We need no other. We act like we're the judge. 
Like God has to please us. The whole creator-creature distinction is blurred when we, when we approach God in that way. The Lord holds all the chips, if you will. But he is patient to work with men of faith, as we see here. We mistakenly take Gideon's testing of God as a sign of his faithlessness. But remember, Hebrews 11.32 says that Gideon is in the hall of faith. The author places him in the hall of faith. Without qualification, without footnoting. Not, now remember when he was testing the Lord. No, he is among the men and women who have had faith down through the centuries and whose faith was exemplary for us to imitate. He is to be remembered as a great man, a mighty man of valor. We even have covenant children who are, who are named because of him. He is a man of faith in God. By faith, he conquered kingdoms. By faith, he enforced justice. But not a perfect faith. But faith in the perfect Lord, who is ever patient with him, who is ever patient with us. Dear ones, God does not condemn, but corrects us who doubt yet believe, or who believe yet doubt. God is gracious to us as he was with Gideon. Now, if we were God, how would we respond to someone who challenges our word, who challenges our works, our actions? You don't need, you don't need a long time to answer that question. You know how you would act. You know if you were God in this situation, Gideon would be gone dust and ashes, because that's what we prefer to anyone who's going to challenge what we say. Do you not know who I am? How dare you say that to me, about me? Do you not know what I've done? Do you not know the degrees I've gotten? Do you not know the experience I have? How dare you challenge what I say? How dare you challenge what I have done? People feel our wrath all the time because they happen to question weak, fallible, miserable sinners. But what we see here is, thankfully, we don't have to have it all together before God's grace shows up in our lives. Like Sarah, we may laugh at the inviolable promises of God. Like Moses, we may wonder at our own usefulness and ask, God, can you use me? Will you use me? Like Elijah, we may destroy Baal, but then descend into a depression when we're poked by a sinner. Like Hezekiah, we may ask for another sign to ensure their life will be preserved. Like Haman, we may go down to the pit, friendless and with darkness as our companion. Like John the Baptist, we may ask of Jesus, are you the one to come? Are you really the guy? Because it sure doesn't seem like it. Like Peter on the water, we may fix our eyes only to pull away and fall into chaos. Like the disciple, we may cry out, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Or like the doubting Thomas, we may demand physical sight, physical touch to know 
once and for all for sure that Jesus truly is the risen Lord. Or even like the disciples at the Great Commission, can you imagine Jesus raised from the dead, appears to them, and the Bible says some believed and others doubted. That's marvelous. How could you see him physically risen? You knew him to be dead and then still doubt. Is that really him? And still we, we have that spirit in Luke 16, in the, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Oh, if, if only someone will come to my family risen from the dead, then my brothers will finally believe. And what is said there is, no. Even if someone should rise from the dead, they will not believe. If their hearts remain hardened, they will not. They have the prophets. They have the scriptures. Let them hear them. Let them hear, thus saith the Lord. Let them hear the very voice of God. Yet we struggle. We have it. But our, our faith is weak. Some of us surely, if not all of us, have doubted from one time or another the power of God, the presence of God, the protection that God gives, the promises that he makes, and his own preservation of us. We doubt all of these from one time to another. And just as God appeared to all those men and women in their weakness, he will for you. He has. He has already said it. It's right here. You don't need to look for another sign outside of Scripture. He's given you his very word to assure you that he is powerful, to assure you that he is with you, to assure you that he is protecting you, to assure you with promise after promise after promise of his goodness, of his grace, of his mercy, of his love, of his kindness, of his wisdom. Nancy Guthrie wrote a book titled, God Does His Best Work With Empty. God does his best work with empty. When we are at a point, when we realize that we have nothing to offer, that we are fully depleted of what we thought we had, then you will see the Lord work in great and marvelous ways. But if you continue to arrogate to yourself, if you continue to be proud and to think that I can accomplish things in my own power, yeah, I need Jesus, but I also need to do things myself, my own way, you will find yourself over and over again humbled, humbled by the Lord God Almighty who is willing our humility day after day. May we see with each morning our utter dependence on God, our own weakness that should rest on his strength. Now, this does not give us license to go on sinning. This doesn't give us permission to test the Lord. This fact doesn't Say, go ahead and refuse working out your salvation with the fear and trembling. Or you don't need to keep supplementing your faith with virtue and knowledge and self-control and godliness and brotherly affection and love. We're commanded to do all those things in Scripture. But this is to give us comfort in the Son of God. In Him, 
whose faith-filled righteousness is given to us. You do not need to have a perfect faith, but only God's gift of faith in the perfect Savior, whose faith in the Father, though thoroughly tested, always proved faithful. That's whom you need. And may you see your dependence every single day. Your salvation does not rest in your faith. Weak or strong it may be. But in the Lord, who is as strong as can be. Faith is always necessary this side of heaven for the church militant. Theologians often talk about the church militant. And that is the church here on earth as it is waging war against the flesh, the world, and devil. We are a military church in the theological sense. As we've seen before, and as we will see again, true worship is set against false worship. In evangelical history in America, the, the phrase worship wars may, be, may bring to your memory the decades from 1970s through 1990s, in part still going on today. These decades of civil or not so civil infighting about music. Shall our music be traditional? Whatever, whatever that is. Shall it be contemporary? And if so, how contemporary? Like hot off the press contemporary? Or 10 years before contemporary? And if that's 10 years before, is that traditional? Or is it contemporary? Shall we have hymns? What about those psalms? Can we use those? Choirs, organs, guitars, bands, praise songs, and on and on and on. Now Gideon had to face his own worship war. And we will also. He had one from within and from without. There was opposition from within, that is to say, from his own kinsmen, from his own national family, those people who loved what they thought were gifts of Baal. They thought that Baal really did help them, and they didn't want Baal to leave. He's been too good for them, too too good to them. But he had also opposition from without, from the Midianites, from the Amalekites, from the people of the East, those who do not represent the the people of God. We are to be committed to true worship despite all opposition, from within or from without. From within, we face opposition from our own families at times, from our own churches. There is opposition. Not everyone agrees. There might be in your own family unbelievers. There might be in your own family believers who do not share the Reformed faith that you do. And so there's opposition. There might be opposition from one church to another church. We know this well. We must pray that we will remain firm despite the attacks of our unbelieving family members, friends. We must also at the same time pray for softer hearts that don't trip over molehills. We too often build mountains out of molehills, don't we? We too often take something so small and blow it up and say, wow, this is insurmountable. This conflict, this opposition that we're experiencing is just too much to handle. Even though it's it's just a little thing. 
there is also opposition from without, from outside of the church. We know this well with the LGBTQA and on and on and on with this influence. We need to pray and preach away this insistence that has certainly crept into the church. It has gained a foothold. We must pray that it doesn't gain any stronger a foothold than it already has. But sadly, we have in our own denomination seen this, haven't we? Last year in June, we reported to you all the good news that a minority report got passed at the General Assembly level such that we would have a book of church order change to specify very clearly who can be an ordained office bearer, an elder or a deacon. And you cannot, according to this motion, you cannot self-identify with your sin. You you cannot say, for instance, that I am a gay Christian and think that you can be a deacon, that you can be an elder, you can be a pastor. And thankfully, that motion got approved. The majority of General Assembly accepted it. But that's not all that's necessary in order for a book of church order change to take place. As many of you know, two-thirds of our presbyteries, our regional churches, have to approve it as well. And sadly, about a month and a half or so ago, we did not get that benchmark. We didn't reach two-thirds of approval. So what's going to happen is now we don't get to bring it to General Assembly this coming year for ratification, for approval. We have to wait for other measures to be taken, other language to be used, other overtures to be made, and that just delays this whole thing, which we already should know, for crying out loud. No Christian should ever self-identify with his or her sin, and certainly those office bearers who are to be above reproach should not take on any kind of sinful label as a way of uh, sympathizing with strugglers. We, we abominate the sin. We hate the sin. And we say that there is refuge in Christ. There is the transformative power of the Spirit. But sadly, this ridiculous motion, uh, this, or, or this way that has been brought into the world, or brought from the world into the church, has affected our own denomination. That's why people can say rightly of our denomination, we are sick, we're hurting, we're weak. We need to be stronger in the Lord. If only we would trust what he says, as you have said. Thus, say it the Lord. If only we would be committed to what God's word said. Then we would easily drive away any of these sinful influences of the world. Joash, Gideon's dad here, in the spirit of Elijah, before Elijah's time, throws Baal against the ropes. And who can forget Elijah's bold confrontation against Baal's prophets, performing far better than Jason Bourne ever did? 1v450. When Knox was a slave in the galleys, he was ordered to reverence a painted figure of the Virgin Mary. He threw it in the river with this comment, Let Our Lady now save herself. She is light enough. Let her learn to swim. Do not paste the coexist sticker over your hearts. You don't need to tattoo tolerance on your arm. If by tolerance you mean the acceptance, the adoption of all beliefs. 
Is Christ king or not? Does he say everything goes? No, he says, my word goes. I have spoken. But dear ones, you don't have to be a Joash. You don't have to be an Elijah. You don't have to be a John Knox. You just have to say, we must obey God over man. That's all you have to say. You're telling me to believe something, it goes against the word of God. I'm not going to believe it. You're telling me to do something that goes against God's word. I'm not going to do it. Just plain and simple. And the repentant, the one who truly trusts in the Lord, hates his sin, as we see here, out with this desecration, this veil, and in with the prescription, in with the Lord, who is peace. Verse 26, it says, And build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here, and with stones laid in due order. The repentant doesn't do away with one idolatrous influence only to add another. It is not enough, dear ones, to put away drinking. We must, as Paul says, put on the Spirit. It is not enough to put down lying. We must then pick up truth-telling. It is not enough to put off excessive entertainment. We must put on hard, godly labor. And this putting on means death. It means death to the self. And this means war. Committed to worship God, Gideon gathered others to wage war with him. The war is yet to begin. We haven't haven't seen it yet. It's coming up next chapter. But the Abiezrites, the men of Manasseh, Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, they've all been called upon to fight with him against Midian. And we are reminded again, Brothers and sisters, that sanctification is a communal project. That you help one another to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. That you come alongside one another. You pray with and for one another. You look for opportunities to serve one another. Even as the chairman of deacons, Seth Adams, had said before the service began. Look for opportunities to serve. Make sure that you enlist men and women who are God-adoring, who are Bible-obeying, who are Christ-exalting and church-loving people to come side by side in battle against our enemies. And we see here is that the Son restores true worship. He reinvigorates the soul for spiritual warfare. The world will cry out, as the men of the town did to Joash, bring out your son, it is time for him to die. He has broken down the altar of Baal. He's cut down the Asherah. Bring him to us now. But you see Gideon here portrayed as the one who has come to restore true worship, who has come to replace the idols of the land with the altar of the Lord. And in this way, he points to us, he points us to the Son of God, the angel of the Lord, Christ Jesus. You can hear the cries of the crowd, instigated by the the Pharisees, by the Sadducees, bring him out. Bring him out, Pilate, that he might be crucified. He speaks against us. He speaks against his temple. He speaks against the law of Moses. He speaks against you. It is time for this man to die. Bring him to us that he may be crucified. And unlike Gideon, the Christ, after revealing the blasphemy of the religious He restores true worship. And how does he do that? Through his death as the sacrifice. 
And with the death of Christ, the Son of God brings down to Hades all hellish worship. And so those who go with the bales of the world will go down with the bales. But all who go down with Christ are raised with him in newness of life. Exultant worship. And another way, Gideon anticipates our Savior in his spirit garment in verse 34. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the Abiezrites were called out to follow him. Clothed in the Spirit, Gideon trumpeted his trust in the Lord. This language of spirit clothing is truly fascinating. This verse is incredible. The Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. The Spirit envelops the man, covers the man like a garment, envelops its wearer. Spirit flows down upon the man like a garment would. And after Adam and Eve sinned, what does God do? God clothes them with bloody garments of forgiveness. In 2 Chronicles 24, verse 20, it says that the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah. And why did he clothe Zechariah? To confront the idolatrous Judah. In 1 Chronicles 12, 18, the Spirit of God clothes Amasai, chief of David's mighty men of God. Why? To join David in his many battles for the Lord. The Spirit clothes these men for battle. As one man says, as the Spirit of God clothed the tabernacle, filling it with his glory of wisdom and power, so now he fills these men of God. He endows them with himself for spiritual battles. Getting is clothed in the Spirit. And he is named. You see, he's been given a new name, Jeroboam. That is to say, let Baal contend against him. He was renamed because of his, his commitment, his commitment to the Lord, his commitment against Baal. No longer was he to allow Baal to walk around barefoot on the holy ground in his house. He drew the line in the sand. He said, let Baal contend. And he became known for that boldness. See how amazing it is that the Lord, who is the Spirit, what he will do for weak faith, knee-shaking, heart-doubting humans, when he grips them by his grace and he refuses to let go? See the grace that is just pouring out upon Gideon? It's clothing Gideon? And we are alike clothed by the Spirit. We also have a new name as images of Christ here on earth. We go by a better name than Jeroboam, don't we? We go by the name of Christian. Not little Christ, but slave of Christ. One who is devoted to the Christ. And we say, let Christ contend in me, through me. Let Caesar come at me. Christ is king. Caesar poses no threat. Let my flesh assail me. What can flesh do to me anyways? Christ gave me his for my salvation. Let Satan roar all he wants. The roar of the lion of the tribe of Judah will melt him in hell. We go with a better name. We go with greater clothing, don't we? We go with the spirit who has permanently filled 
us with himself. And with the blood of Christ, he fills our souls with this glory cloud, and no enemy may come in. And as we are clothed in the Spirit, we obey. We walk in step with the Spirit. Clothed with the Spirit, we go against all opposition from within, from without. We wage war against our enemy, the flesh, the world, and the devil. And with the Spirit clothing, we worship. We let our voices trumpet the deeds of our great God because the Son of God came to restore us for worship. Let's pray. Our gracious, glorious God, we marvel, we praise your holy name for so great a salvation, for so great a restoration of worship. You saw us as idol makers and giving ourselves over to our idols, clinging to them. But by grace, you decided to save us, to restore us to worship. We know from your word that, that you seek true worshipers. And in that search, you desire that we, and you work so that we would have a stronger faith, a greater firmness in the Lord who is always faithful. Help us, O Lord, we pray, to to grow in that faith and to grow then in our worship of you. Amen.